Welcome to the latest episode of Data Unchained. I'm your host, Molly Presley. If you haven't heard our podcast before, let me tell you a little bit about what Data Unchained is all about. Over the last 10, 20 years, the paradigm for data access has changed a lot. Data started to move to the edge. It started to move into sensor-generated environments. And then we had the advent of the cloud. And as data has become more decentralized, getting access to Distributed data sets, moving data to cloud computing, remote workers through COVID need more access to data. The access to this decentralized data has become really challenging, but there's a lot of value hidden within that data. Data Unchained digs into both the challenges as well as the solutions to make data an asset as a global resource. Today's guest has a great amount of insight into both pieces, how to centralize or gather data sets, as well as how to get value out of them. So it should be a great show. Eleanor Howe is the founder and CEO of Diamond Age Data Science and should have a great conversation. So Eleanor, thank you so much for joining. I'm glad to be here. Before we talk about Diamond Age Data Science, um, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? You have a really interesting background. I think that's a fun way to get started. Sure. Yeah. Uh, my background started in on the biology side. I was a bench scientist, uh, master's in undergrad in cell and molecular biology. And I learned actually very quickly that I really was terrible at bench side experiments <laughs> and uh, computers were much better for me. Um, so I went to work at the Institute for Genomic Research and I learned about transcriptional profiling for the first time there back in the day of spotted microarrays, which are very old tech now. And, uh, and then I moved to Dana-Farber and I worked there for a time also in transcriptional profiling, software engineering. I learned much of the coding that I know on the job. And I went back and got my PhD later in bioinformatics at Oxford. Um, after, you know, when I was in undergrad and looking at PhD programs, there weren't bioinformatics degrees. Uh, so by the time that I went back to school, there were. And then uh, when I finished that, I worked and went to work at the Broad Institute. And that's where I got into drug discovery, which turns out is phenomenally cool and uh, something that I really love doing. And then I uh, launched Diamond Age out of my personal consulting practice, working with biotechs and helping them with their data analysis and management uh, problems. I think I took a similar path to you. I was a biochemistry major and I struggled in particular in organic chemistry because, you know, you're supposed to have some precision in organic, but then I got to inorganic where there's supposed to be a lot of precision. And I was far outside the precision, precision on my experiments that um, made me realize I needed to do something else too. So I, <laughs> I have a analytical chemistry mm -hmm. and analytical chemistry was, that was no joke. I remember No, it's no joke, yeah. but I guess you want to get it right if you're going to be doing things like making drugs. So. <laughs> Yeah. Interesting, though. Um, yeah, bioinformatics, it does seem like it's a fairly new field because it's bringing together so many different types of skills, you know, both actual real science as well as computer science. Um, you know, I, I, as you see bioinformatics evolving, how does that tie to data science? Yeah, it's interesting because to me, data science is sort of the superset that within which you have fields like bioinformatics and computational biology. So to me, data science is using math, using data sets to answer questions, scientific questions or business questions. Um, but 
if you apply biological knowledge to that, then you have computational biology, bioinformatics, and all those related fields. So I consider myself a data scientist. Um, I mean, I write code, and I do statistics, and I know biology, and I am definitely, I think, one of those. So tell us a little bit about Diamond Age data science. Are you focused primarily in the life sciences space? Um, do you go into other markets? Maybe just tell us a little bit about the focus of the type of data as well as what the company does. Sure. Yeah, we are absolutely a life sciences company. So my team is senior computational biologists. So we are all, almost all, life scientists. And then we also write code and do statistics uh, because now you need to do those things. If you want to work with the data sets that are being generated in uh, life sciences, you need to <laughs> you need to harness computers to do that. The data sets are too big to eyeball now. So Yeah, for sure. So where did the data sets come from? Tell us a little bit about it. Is it, you know, like um, genetic data? Is it drug data? Is it, you know, coming out of crops? What yeah, tells for us, a about it's uh, a little of everything. So we get a lot of genomics data. So stuff fresh off a sequencer. Uh, sometimes it's processed. It goes through um, you know, multiple processing steps when data comes off a sequencer. Sometimes those steps need interference. Sometimes they don't. Their standard algorithms are enough to handle them. We also work with data that comes right out of the clinic, so much more kind of hand-collected data sets, and then public data sets, things that are available on the internet um, in various places, some of which are hard to get and some of which are not, and then sometimes collaborators, you know, institutions, uh, universities, companies, uh, private nonprofit institutes, all kinds of different locations, cloud, not cloud, uh, a little of everything. So can you give us an example of the type of work you do for your clients? Maybe you can give us a couple of examples just to get the juices flowing for our listeners as you know, we do have a lot of listeners in the um, life sciences space of what kind of things might they pull you in to do? Sure. And I'll try to speak to things so that your non-life sciences listeners can understand <laughs> it as well, because Excellent. I know that that's important. Uh, yeah, I, it, getting deep into the jargon is definitely something that comes naturally and I have to <laughs> think to avoid. So uh, to be uh, accessible to everyone, um, when people are doing drug discovery, they uh, they often need to do things like check. They have a drug, a potential drug. It's not approved they need to figure out what it's doing exactly, right? They know that they have, that this, this drug has a, an impact on, say, a cell line or an animal model that they think is going to be good and is going to translate to a treatment for a disease, but they don't know exactly how it works. So a lot of what they do, this is called a mechanism of action um, study. They're trying to figure out how is this drug working? What's it doing at the molecular level in the cells? Um, there's a lot of ways to look at that, and a lot of them include checking out what happens at the transcription level in the cells. So measuring the activity of every gene in a cell uh, across you know, in, in, a, in a, the whole genome. So 20,000 genes, however many genes the organism has, you measure each of them and you count basically how, how often is this gene used. Those profiles can tell you a lot about what the cells are doing. Uh, and so you can find out which biological pathways are being activated or suppressed, and you can narrow in on what kind of um, mechanism the drug has. It's not required that you understand your mechanism to get FDA approval for a drug, but it is really highly recommended. Yeah, so I think when you think about um, 
where does the data come from? And I think less, you know, the the science of the sequencer, but do you have data sets coming from many places? Do you have the need to move those data sets to data scientists or to the cloud? What does the workflow look like? It's different for every client because they're all over the place about where they keep their data. So for some clients, they have everything already in their own cloud environment. They give us a login, we get in there and we work with it right there. Some of them are not so lucky as to have that. And so they ask us to go get it. And so sometimes we're making formal requests to uh, regulated databases to work with the data. And so then we have to do a transfer, a file transfer across some gap, right? Most of the time we need to stay in the cloud. The data sets are too large for us to say download to a laptop. Um, occasionally we can email things, right? And that always makes it super easy. But right. much of the time there's some sort of cloud environment to cloud environment transfer or there's integration of multiple data sets from multiple locations. And that's always, that's always a mess, right? Sometimes we find ourselves uh, with no option but to put a hard drive in a FedEx box and send it across the country. We have done that. And at one point, we actually sent somebody on a bicycle to pick up a hard drive and take it down <laughs> to a, a cloud. Very high tech. No, yeah, it was a very, it was a, you know how it is, you're on a tight timeline. So the bicycle was actually a very high bandwidth data transfer. <laughs> so once you've um, had a chance to collect the data sets and you're getting ready to do analysis, are you using... AI? Is it ML or, or is it industry-specific analytics tools? Uh, we use everything that is appropriate for whatever the problem is. So most often that is, um, how do I break this down? Uh, traditional machine learning, uh, meaning classifiers and that uh, kind of uh, slightly more old school machine learning. Um, AI occasionally, although frankly, many of the small companies that we work with don't have data sets large enough to support deep learning or large language models. They just cannot be trained. So only as appropriate do we use that kind of tooling. And then um, for many of the data sets that we work with, there are sort of known statistical methods that are appropriate for the types of tests that we do. And so we that's one of our jobs is to know is there an appropriate method that is already established or do we have to d develop something novel to analyze this data set? And so we will do whatever is appropriate. For the example I gave earlier with mechanism of action studies, if you're doing a simple comparison of two transcriptional profiles, it's very well established exactly how you do that. You go use the appropriate open source package and you get an answer. For other more complex uh, analyses, we may have to develop something entirely new using, say, machine learning methods um, or deep learning or LLMs. So we talked about decentralized data and data coming out of multiple sources. And I was kind of asking that question, thinking about machines that have created data off of instruments or at the edge or in the data center, that type of thing, or even in a doctor's office. But there's a whole other type of unstructured data out there, documents, PDFs, reports. Can you pull that data into this, um, this process? Uh, we can. It's painful. Uh, my, my hot take on that is that if it's a PDF, it's not actually data yet <laughs> because, uh, cause it's not, it's not in a structured machine readable format, really, it, probably not. Uh, and, uh, very often what we see, actually, we see a lot of PDFs, um, a lot of reports in whatever format that they're in, um, that come out of, um, CROs that do sequencing services and other data generation services, and they produce a canned 
basic report with some analysis results. And those things are very often not useful as they are, um, either because the scientists who get them are not able to interpret them properly, or the data, there's something wrong with it and it's not interpretable as it is, or the analysis that's needed with that data has not been done because the normal canned analysis that you can get when you just run a normal open source package is not sufficient to answer the scientific questions. So to me, it's not data yet until you pull it out of that PDF, you get it lined up with other data like it somewhere, and you have a, an expert in that data type look at it all in context and then look at it in the context, sorry, in context of other data like it and also in the scientific question that was being asked by the people who are in charge of the experiment. Um, and all of those things uh, take a lot of intervention, right? And I think it's why a lot of this unstructured data has not been included in data science up till pretty recently. You know, the, even though whatever the number is, 90, 95% of the world's data is unstructured, it's difficult to access. And, you know, I think your subtlety of it may be good information, but it's not really usable data until there's some work done to it is, is what's held a lot of the, the value in that data from being realized. Yeah, absolutely. And how do you help your clients prepare for maybe it's for AI or just for getting more value out of their data, their analytics jobs? Is there, you know, kind of a best practices checklist you have of, you know, the way you're going to approach data creation, maybe, you know, hygiene on where you're storing those data sets to make it easier for the data scientists. How do you kind of kick that off? Yeah, we're always advising folks that you know, they need to plan ahead. Where are they going to keep that data and how are they going to organize it and how are they going to annotate it uh, appropriately? Because data is useless if you don't have uh, metadata to uh, tell you what is in that file, right? What's in the file? Where was it made? Who made it? Like, how did you get it? Where did it come from? And then the scientific metadata, which is another level deeper, which is what in my, in my world is what organism did you sequence on? What sample, what tissue, when was it done? What lab did it, what treatment did it get? All of that information is so critical to store upfront in a properly formatted way and, and and to make sure that it's all done consistently across all of the data that you have. Um, because if you, try, if you try to integrate 500 different data sets with different annotation mechanisms, different places of origin, they all have batch effects. And I don't know if that's actually, I mean, across data science, that's a very well-known term, but I'm not sure if the business-focused listeners here know about how important a batch effect is. The data that's collected in a different place is going to be fundamentally different. And so you need to know where that data came from, how it got there, its origin story, in order to be able to analyze it properly later. So I always try to encourage clients to keep track of these things early, even when it seems like maybe it's overkill. It's interesting. You know, we've At Hammerspace, part of what we do is create this unified global data environment, which you can anyone can see any data set. And they're using shared metadata. So you can, you know, see the metadata for, as a data set has perhaps moved from one location to another and, you know, know which version is it, the metadata goes with it. And that helps a lot, but it doesn't solve the whole problem, right? You have to 
have policies on how do you create that metadata to start with and how do you reference it within your applications. Um, how How is metadata created in these kinds of data sets? Is it humans? Is it something that comes off of, you know, the sensor that has information? Um, does a machine do it? Tell us just a little bit about that. I mean, of course, the answer is it's all of those things. Uh, because <laughs> I kind of knew that. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, one of the rules of thermobiology is that can it get more complicated? Then it probably is. Yes, it can. Yes, it can get more complicated. And it probably is more complicated than uh, what you originally expected. So, uh, yes, humans generate a certain amount of this metadata because um, the process of uh, doing an experiment with one set of one type of animal or another or which tissue that always it starts with the human who decides, you know, I got a scalpel and a mouse here. Which organ am I going to pull out of it? Right. You need to collect that. And then more more technically speaking, uh, very often our clients are trying to pull data from other sources and they need to sit down and write down where they got it and when. And that's one of the challenges um, when you build, say, a target identification system where you're trying to prioritize drug targets. Uh, there are many data sets online that you can use to do that. And the problem is that those data sets get updated periodically by their creators. And they're mm -hmm. essential to us doing our work. And so for us, capturing which version we used at what time is really critically important. That's one of the data, the metadata bits is what version of that data set were you working with when you generated this particular result? And that particular result could change dramatically uh, when you rerun it next time because the database updated. And you need a way to figure that out. And so that sort of versioning is a can be a big challenge depending on which resources you're working with. As you think about consulting on data science, is it mostly setting up best practices in the orgs? Or are you coming in with your own technical team and taking it over and doing the work yourself? What how how involved do you get in the actual science? We actually do the hands-on work ourselves. We also advise on how to do it well and what's, how to set up for success and how to design that experiment to make sure that it works properly. But then we come in and do the analysis and handle the data, process it, sometimes in our own uh, cloud environment and sometimes within our clients. Both work well. And how do you control costs, not just of your team's time? I mean, people time is important, but storing data, moving it, moving it back, um, compute costs. <laughs> <laughs> How do you think about that as you're, you know, if money weren't an issue, people could move these things around, process on any cloud region, you know, pull the data set back, pay egress charges, you know, all of that. Um, how how do you think about cost for your customers? Is is there a strategy there to containing things? I mean, we, it, the, the simplest strategy is don't move things if you can possibly avoid it. Uh, that's, that's, the, that's the piece of advice I have. Work with the minimal data set that you actually need. Um, and if that means processing in place and then moving the results somewhere else to then further process on, do it that way. And then just don't move stuff. Work with it where it is. Um, doing cross-cloud transfers doesn't make sense most of the time unless you're doing one permanent move, in my mind. I'm sure there are business cases where it's different, but that's sort of where I start. Okay, that makes sense. And so kind of establishing your, your objectives early on and having your data sit where you need it in a very purposeful sort of way instead of reacting to, oh, gosh, we created this, but we need it over there. And, you know, maybe I want to use an LLM and it's not even available where my data sits. Those are some things you can help a customer 
think through before they get too far into a project? Yeah, we always recommend, especially for small companies, that they go with a pure cloud play um, because of that, because they don't want to be moving things around. It's a big pain in the neck. And the cost of using is the cost of building out an on-prem solution is often um yeah yeah it it's buying and owning the equipment is technically cheaper if you know exactly what you're using and what your capacity is but by definition a startup cannot do that um and so you don't know what you're going to get you're going to change your mind six times between now and next year about what kind of computing that you need and the way to handle that is to use a flexible resource or you buy what you use right away it's actually the same it's the same model as working with a consulting firm right like yeah you can hire a whole team of people who can do the work but you don't know if you need them for a year so don't do that that's not that's not what i would do so so eleanor um it, we've talked a lot about the tech and kind of, you know, where data sits and the analytics bit. What are the real problems that businesses are trying to solve through these data science workloads? Well, in my world, what they're trying to do is they're trying to figure out how to um, improve human health. For the most part, occasionally it's how to feed humans uh, in the ag space, which is also part of human health. But mostly they're trying to understand a biological system because they want to intervene and make it better. So that means you really need to understand the biology uh, that you're working with. And so the data that we're collecting, it, like the goal of collecting the data is to understand the biology and what is going on inside the organism. How can we affect it in a positive way? So the key part is that the people who are doing the analysis understand the biology. That's one of the, one of the hills I will die on is that in order to analyze these types of data sets, you need to be able to understand the scientific side. So they're trying to solve problems like, what is my drug doing? Um, what is my next drug? What should I, you know, what, what, what chemical or antibody or gene therapy intervention is going to impact disease in the way that I want it to? Or is my uh, therapy going to work in this population of patients or this other population of patients? Those are the kinds of questions that we help people ask. Okay, okay. And how do business leaders in a life science company get these results? Do they end out, um, is it something that they can do kind of like what we're becoming accustomed to with chat GBT? They can just ask questions of the data sets themselves. Is this more like a tableau presentation of data? Kind of how, how does a business look at the results from these, these projects? By the time it gets to the level of say business leadership, it's usually in a PowerPoint slide and it's a figure that is um, reasonably simplified. It's like a simple scatter plot or a sigmoidal curve or similar. Yeah, um, when it's the people who are doing the interpretation and writing the title of that slide to describe what that figure means, those folks are looking at things, much more complex plots. They're looking at raw numbers and p-values and lists of pathways and network diagrams and um, things like that. It's not machines still who are making these decisions. There's a lot of human um, interpretation and looking at results. It's, it's not just being offloaded to machines at this point. It, it takes the human scientists to understand and think about the results. Yeah, I think that the machines are able to do the, the machines are able to do discrete pieces of the work. Um, and and those things and those machines like they're 
they live in a little box, right? There's a little box that the machine lives in and it can give you an answer about a particular sub-question that is one piece of the big puzzle that is the integration of all of those little boxes from many different areas across many different data sets. And so it's that integration piece that the humans have to do. And the boxes that the machines are able to operate in, they, they keep getting a little bigger all the time. And that is phenomenal and it is helping everyone. But what that actually does is it causes the humans to have to deal with a lot more boxes and to connect all of those boxes together, right? And so for the person involved, you, you know, they need to understand the, the possibility of which, which machines are available to help them answer questions, what they're good at, what they're not, what kind of data they require, and then go execute on those things. You have to learn how to operate the machines, but that's honestly one of the easier parts. Then you look at the results and you say, okay, I'm a biologist now. I'm putting on my biologist hat. What does this mean for the person who is sick that I am trying to help? Look, is this cell going to react positively or negatively? Is it going to, is it, is this cancer cell going to die or not? So if you think about a data scientist and there's it, you know, 10 years ago, there was almost none. Now there's a lot. And yeah. they're thinking about where their work be most meaningful. And they believe in something like life sciences as a really meaningful way to spend their career. Can they just jump into life sciences with a core data science skill set that came from another space or just from the IT side? Or do you really have to have some life science expertise to, to get into this space? You can't make a meaningful contribution to the scientific process without that scientific background. Interesting. Interesting. So those folks can learn the biology, but they need to learn the biology to really do the work. And until okay. they learn the biology, they're going to be doing things like maybe cleaning data sets. Um, and, but even the cleaning, you need to understand what the data is in order to know what it looks like when it's clean. Right. So right. I, I think there's a there's a limit to what folks can do without learning the science. And you definitely, the, the folks on my team have to learn. They have to already know the biology, actually. Everybody on the team has been trained in biological sciences at one level or another. So, you know, otherwise they can't do this work. Okay. And that's where I see so much value in teams like yours, yours that it's hard to come by people with strong IT, strong data science, and strong real science, um, you know, like life science experience. Wait, data science is a real science. It yeah, is. Like science. Science yeah. is probably not the best way to put it. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, and you know, but knowledge... like the life science. Yeah. Yeah. Domain knowledge matters. Like the, the, the thing that, that is hard is to sit down with a transcriptional profiling data set and do anything useful with it. If you don't know what a transcript is or why it matters, right? A, a transcript, mm -hmm. by the way, is a, a, a length of RNA that is uh, copied off of the DNA and then it is used as a template for creating a protein, usually in the cell. As always, it is more complicated than that. And if a person who's looking at this data set doesn't understand something about the complexity of that and why I hesitated when I said, and then you use this RNA to transcribe or translate a protein, uh, then you won't be able to like tell people what this data set actually is doing, what's happening here. So when we think about putting this data to work and, you know, the, the scientists who can understand it, um, can you tell us a little bit more about how do you curate the data sets? Um, what does putting a good quality data set together look like? Yeah, unification and harmonization is kind of two of the buzzwords for that kind of work. Um, 
I mentioned batch effects earlier and how they're sort of well-known as a problem. Um, the misleading thing about the phrase batch effect is that when you say it to a data scientist, uh, you imply that it's possible to remove that batch effect and that you can just sort of scrape it away and clean it up and it's gone. And that is definitely the case for some batch effects, right? The differences in a data set, in the differences between data sets, right? Collected on, say, the same tissue, the same organism, the same uh, experimental conditions, but done in two different labs. Sometimes you can just remove that lab effect from it if you have the right controls in place. Um, if you don't have the right controls in place, you cannot. Uh, if you, say, did one strain of rat in one lab and a different strain of rat in the other lab, you will never separate out the strain effects from the lab effects. And so true batch correction isn't really possible. So to extrapolate from that, uh, collecting multiple data sets, um, many different data sets that were collected under a million different conditions, and then slamming them all together and trying to run a deep learning model on them is um, it's more challenging than it sounds. Um, I'm not going to say it can't work, but it takes a lot of work to get those data sets into a position where they can be used together meaningfully because you have that batch effect problem writ large into like, a, like multiply it by a million times. And so are you going to sit down and a million times over try to clean up the differences between each new data set that you try to add? The specific example that I'm thinking about is a repository called um, GEO, the Gene Expression Omnibus, which is a yeah, it's a website where you can submit transcriptional profiling data. It's my thing. I'm into transcriptional profiling. I'm going to talk about it a lot. Um, and there are no rules. Um, well, there are some rules, but there are not enough rules, let's put it that way, for what you have to do with that data to put it into the repository and about how it has, how rules about how it was generated and everything. They're, they're just not there. That repository is, I want to say it's 20 years old now. It's been collecting data for a long time. So a lot of the data in there is just not suitable for training anything on because garbage in, garbage out is a real thing. And so, and there is a lot of garbage in those public repositories. So just sitting a learner on top of that and then expecting uh, caviar to come out the other end is not gonna happen. So what does a, what does a company do when they don't have um, a large data set of their own that's highly curated, and yet they want to be able to, you know, innovate and build products. What what do they do? Yeah, we like to describe ourselves as a bioinformatics department uh, that folks can uh, hire on in a consultative role to help them with whatever they're working on. So we try to cover as much of the world of bioinformatics as we can, uh, and we can do that in a way that allows them to use skill sets across the enormous and ever-growing field of bioinformatics, you know, transcriptomics, NGS sequencing, proteomics, metabolomics, lipidomics, biostatistics, all of these things, uh, the cloud engineering that you need to do all this stuff well, the software, all of that. Um, small companies especially, they need tiny bits of each of those skills, right? And there's no single FTE in the world who can do them all. Um, and then they also don't know what they're going to need next month or six months from now or whatever. So we help them with um, that flexibility so they can bring us in and we can supply all of those things when they need them. And they don't have to go unicorn hunting with their, you know, they won't drive their recruiters crazy trying to find a magical being who does not exist. Except yeah, it does. Definitely. It's us. 
that unicorn, even if you can find it, might take you five years. And at that point, <laughs> it's been yep. much too long. <laughs> and so exactly. being able to have that agility to get up and running and have the scientists you need yeah. fast, that seems to be a huge, extremely valuable. It helps a lot. Yeah. And kind of as we wrap up, I think it's always on everyone's mind taking advantage of the newest, latest and greatest things out there and machine learning, large language models, everyone hears about them and the potential power, you know, sure there's potential risks and we hear about those too, but the potential power of using some of these large language models with your own data sets. If you're a small company and you really don't have huge quantities of data, where is your path in staying competitive? If you're, if the big company, you know, Broad or somebody like that is, is using LLMs, kind of how, how do you see, predict that looking moving forward? I mean, I'm a biologist, right? So to me, like what you're trying to do is depends, like you shouldn't say, you shouldn't decide on the technology before you decide on the problem you're trying to solve. So for my um, purposes, I would say, well, why do you want a large language model in the first place? Is it because it's cool? Which it is. No lie. It is. Sure. Sure. Or is it because like you have a particular problem that you're trying to solve with a particular type of data set. Um, and in some cases, also, large language models may be the exact right and only thing that works. And in some of this protein structure prediction work, that is absolutely true. And if it is utterly essential that you are able to do high quality protein structure position uh, prediction on protein structures that already exist in data sets that are out there in the world that could be trained on, then your option of choice is a large language model or similar structural modeling, right? But if you're working on a protein set that isn't well represented in PDB, the protein data bank, then you're SOL anyway. You would have to generate your own data set in order to build a model that works well with that. So you really need to know what is the problem you're trying to solve? Is the data set that's out there that's available to license or to download and train on, is that even the appropriate data set? before you even think about trying to spend money on building a data set. Simply put, there's not an obvious answer for everyone. It's going to be different. But I think yeah. your point of understand the business problem, what you're trying to do, it, it applies across any kind of data science. Just doing number crunching and analytics on a data set without a clear direction on what problem you're trying to solve, it, the, the results aren't super valuable. And it seems that that's true with LLMs. You know, they could help, but they may not be necessary or even valuable in the problem you're trying to solve. So yeah, I think that's, that's a great way to, even though it's roundabout, to tie up why it's important to use companies and consultants like Diamond Age, because it's not a straight binary answer to any of these questions. Yeah, the large language models are not going to make a drug for you, and they're not going to tell you which patients need the drug. Uh, so you need that's, to know, and that's why you're there, right? <laughs> you're either that's there why, to help yeah. people why or we're to build here. drugs. Yeah, yeah exactly. it's why we're all, all of us biologists and all of us, you know, the physicians too. I'm not a physician, but you know, all of us who are in this field are in here is in the end to do that work. But um, you know, computers can only help with the um, small amounts of well-defined pieces. So, so that's interesting, Eleanor, on thinking about how. Um, Domain expertise adds a lot of value in being a data scientist in life sciences. What are some of the risks? Are there rat holes you could go down on the data science if you don't know the science that you're trying to solve? Yeah, absolutely. 
uh, and it's it's a risk that we have to take really seriously because even being domain experts who have a slightly different focus, there is that same rat hole risk. So it's really easy if we aren't in, in like close and regular and frequent co communication with our clients that we can go off down some yeah rat hole, or I like to call them rabbit holes, but whatever, some path that the computer leads you down because the computer is really good at certain things. And as a computationalist, it's really easy to follow the computer's lead down that hole and end up with something that's just useless or boring or wrong, and it's irrelevant to the scientific questions that our clients ask. So that's one of the dangers it's dangerous enough when you are a biologist and you're just trying to stay closely aligned with the exact scientific and business goals of your client. It's impossible to figure it out if you don't have that to my knowledge. That makes sense. The already solved easy path that a computer already knows is not necessarily the problem we're trying to solve. So Exactly. Love it. So, Eleanor, if the, our listeners would like to get in touch with you or with your company, um, what's the best way to contact you? Probably by finding our website, diamondage.com. That's us. There's a contact link there. You can also perfect. find me on LinkedIn. Send me a message. I'd be happy to chat. Okay, perfect. Thank you so much for taking time to join today. I think it was an interesting conversation and went a little bit deeper into some of the, you know, fads that are going on out there that, um, you know, are valuable, but we all have to figure out how to put them to work. So I think it's a really great conversation. Our listeners should really enjoy it. Thanks for listening to Data Unchained, powered by Hammerspace. To learn more, visit hammerspace.com. If you have a guest you would like to hear on the show, email me at molly at hammerspace.com. Mm -hmm.